Welcome to the Zeno Podcast, where we talk about stories and how they shape us and how we shape them. Today we're here with Dr. Daniel Sharp, Assistant Professor of Religion at BYU Hawaii. Hi, great to be here. <laughs> great Is that good? That great sound, to have you. Yeah. 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 Sounds professional. Very professional. I'm very professional. <laughs> You're a seasoned interviewee. It's all that uh, theater training I've had. Oh yeah. So did you get you, your bachelor's in? I got a. I have two bachelor's degrees, one uh, in theater arts, hmm. and um, and then uh, that proved utterly useless in life. <laughs> uh, so then, a decade later, I went back to school and got a second bachelor's degree in integrated studies, history, and religious studies. So yeah, what is integrated studies? Just so the thing was, the school I was at had no religious studies major, so oh, okay. it was only an emphasis within this other major called integrated studies. So okay. I, I think they just didn't have enough classes or something yeah. to field an entire major. And so I took half history classes okay. um, and then half uh, religious studies classes. Sweet. Why the switch? So you just found that the theater wasn't, wasn't doing it for you? Yeah, wasn't well, working for when you? I was, um, well, I, when I got out of high school, I don't know how much of the story do you want to hear. When I went, <laughs> the stories that shape us. Uh, well, when yeah. I was in high school, my father grounded me. Um, do they still ground people? You know, Absolutely. It's like, it's like an extended timeout. Yeah. <laughs> he grounded me until I filled out college applications. And we lived in California. And so I decided I just wanted to go to school as far away from this man as possible. So I only applied <laughs> to places in New York. And the only thing I liked doing was theater. So I applied to acting schools. And um, I wound up getting into NYU and I was studying theater at New York University, when I decided to join the church and uh, converted to the LDS church, uh, at which point, uh, soon after I went on a mission, I got home and decided I wanted to teach for the church and, and be a full-time seminary teacher, which, you know, in Utah and certain parts of the country, that's a job. Like, it's not a volunteer thing. It's You get paid. So I went through that training program, but you can't major at that at BYU. So I just stayed in my theater major degree because I already had credits and it was the fastest way to get done and then planned my life around teaching seminary and I found out the week of graduation that they weren't going to hire me I wasn't good enough and now I teach uh. at this university I hope you enjoy it <laughs> yeah it's a success story rags to riches so so when I graduated so what yeah so I found it was the day before the day after my first son was born I don't quite remember but like my, my first son was born, I was graduating a week, so that means it was finals. And I just found out, yeah, I've been student teaching for a year. I've been in the program for two years. And I just found out, yeah, we're not going to hire you next, you know. And so I just, I didn't know what to do with my life. And I had wow. now a kid to support. So uh, I went to the um, career center they had on campus and I said, I need a career. And I just took the first job that was offered and, and, yeah. and I worked in different jobs for about I don't know, six, seven, eight years. I just hated all of them though. And mm -hmm. would just work for a few years and then quit and then take another job and then quit. And I just really wanted to teach religion. And I knew I needed more degrees and that my theater degree wasn't going to get me into a good graduate program. And so, and then the longer I waited, I was less likely to get a decent letter of reference. Not that a letter of reference from a theater teacher was really going to be very helpful anyway but right. um so finally and it just seemed so overwhelming a task to go back to school for all that time that it just seemed impossible but one day my wife and i just decided to do it so yeah that's what we did hey and good for you living the dream now living the dream now now i'm in hawaii and hawaii. uh teaching religion so there we go does life get any better than that i don't know yeah, more money would be nice <laughs> 
always, always nicer. To you heard it here. <laughs> raise, this man raise, raise. raise the salaries. <laughs> oh, no, wait. I shouldn't say that. Never mind. No one's recording this, right? No. <laughs> Nobody's listening. That's really. <laughs> right, we're working on our promo. Yeah. If you are listening to this right now, congrats. Yeah. You found it. Thank you. <laughs> like, I will personally handshake you whenever I see you. And be like, yeah, let us know. Give you a certificate. In the comments below. So we also, just as an icebreaker, we researched you and we found out that you have a chili pepper on ratemyprofessor.com. How do you feel about that? That's excellent news. I work really hard at that. <laughs> I think it's because I always wear skirts and I have such great legs. Yes. I think that's really what it is. A hundred percent. Yeah, we're adding a, a visual component to this podcast. So just in case you're listening, he's got great Do legs. photographs Great. attached. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll have, get full we'll body shots take in some, a second. We'll take some shots of that. Absolutely. Little photo shoot. Um, I'm pretty sure my wife um, filled that out. So. <laughs> Sweet. Supportive. Yeah, it's actually really funny uh, doing all these interviews because it's just weird what Google has on people. So just when I Googled Daniel Sharp, you know, BYU. Uh, let me just read some of these. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. Ready? This is yeah. a this is a this, review. This is gotcha your... journalism, isn't that? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Brother Sharp is the king of BYUH religion courses. It will honestly change your life and your entire perspective. That's really positive. Yeah. It doesn't say for the better though. It just says it'll change <laughs> it your perspective. Change you know, your perspective. <laughs> it could be much much so worse afterwards. Other. Another yeah. one. Best class I've ever taken in my life. Truthfully, I learned more from his classes than than all my years existing in this world. <laughs> Here's the yeah, kicker. Yeah, that person was a year and a half old, though, so it didn't really count. And he's not bad on the eyes. <laughs> well, that, that must awesome. be my wife then. Yeah, so, that was yeah. The, the greatest. Like, I don't... The greatest. I'm, they're learning a lot in your class. Um, neither have you been in my class, though. No, I haven't. lives. Missing out. So. Well, you still have time. But you've also done some research, which we read. Uh, we read the article, For this cause, did King Benjamin keep them, King Benjamin or King Mosiah? So a catchy title. Yeah. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. So we're hoping that you would tell us a little bit about that, like maybe for people who don't know, like a little bit of the background between the two kings. And Sure. So first I just I should say that we I co-authored this with uh, Dr. Matt Bowen, who also teaches here. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he has a chili pepper or not, though. But uh, yeah, We'll research that later. <laughs> go ahead and check that him one on out. Later. Um, but, uh, yeah, actually, it's a funny story. So I was researching this idea, which we can talk about in just a second, but I was look looking at this thing, and I went and saw uh, Dr. Bowen's office is just right next to mine. I was like, hey, you know, have you ever seen this? What do, what do you think about this? And, and he got really excited about the idea, and he's like, you need to publish a paper on this. And... Um, it's not really my field. Mm -hmm. uh, my uh, my field is more New Testament studies, and so I was like, "No, I, you publish the paper, so I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you everything. I'll give you all the research, and you do it." And so then he, um, so I did. I wrote a little outline and everything, and I, and and he added a lot of stuff to it too, and he continued doing the research, uh, and so and then he wrote a draft, and then I took it and rewrote it and uh so that's kind of how we we ended up working together but it's funny because i'll always go over to him and be like i have this idea and then he'll be like you should publish it i'm like why don't you <laughs> i'm um, it's a teamwork. Ter terribly lazy apparently but um <laughs> anyway so yeah so this is um this paper is about uh two changes that were made in the text of the book of mormon so um, the Book of Mormon, as, as uh, 
I don't know who listens, your mom? I don't know. As your listeners will know, I don't know who this <laughs> as, as some people may know, the Book of Mormon was published in 1830. Um, and uh, there were 5,000 copies made. And in 1837, they published some more, I mean, because they ran out. And again, in, I forget the other years, but 1840 or so, and then, uh, you know, they kept publishing new editions. And as they would publish new editions, they would make um, slight modifications. And um, these two changes we address in this article are originally the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon talked about King Benjamin, and the name King Benjamin was then changed to say King Mosiah. Um, and those passages are in Ether 4.1 and, and Mosiah 21.28. And... Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. What else do you want to know about that? Why or what, what was the... Yeah, like I was interested to know that like people could make changes to the Book of Mormon after it was published. Like, Yeah, so uh, the, the first change, the one, the change made in Mosiah 21-28 was made in 1837. Um, many people believe that this new edition was overseen by the prophet Joseph Smith. So um, presumably he has the right to amend the text, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so he seems to have been wanting to clarify um, what he perceived to be a mistake uh, or, or a correction. But yeah, there's been um, several changes. There's actually a great book by um, Royal Skousen called, I don't know, Textual Changes to the Book of Mormon or something, Royal Skousen, and um, it's now available free online. And um, Chronicles. It's like six volumes long. Wow. The changes made to the textbook more. Most of them are grammatical, mm -hmm. um, spelling. There's not a lot of standardized spelling. There's some corrections of verb tenses, but there are some more significant ones, and this is mm -hmm. this is a couple of them. In this case, what does the change like? What does it affect? Well, it tells a story of um, in the Book of Mormon. There is a group of people um, called. Uh, the people of Limhi, who have left, they're Nephites, but they've left the main Nephite people and have moved off on their own. And they wanted to go back to the land of Zarahemla, where the rest of the Nephites were, but they didn't know how to get there. And so they were wandering. They sent a group, a search party out to go find the land. And when they were wandering around, they came across 24 plates of gold. And they brought it back to the king and said, look, we looked, we looked all over. This is what we found. Um, but we couldn't find the land of Zarahemla. Meanwhile, uh, this person named Ammon comes from the land of Zarahemla trying to find the, peop the this people of Limhi, and he comes across them. And when the king, King Limhi, uh, sees Ammon, he's like, hey, I got these 24 plates. Do you know how to translate them? And he says, no, I don't, but the king of Zarahemla knows how to translate these plates. And in one passage in Mosiah 21, 28, again, in the original 1830, it says the king, Benjamin, knows how to translate this. Um, and then later in Ether chapter 4, when it's talking about the translation of, of this text, it talks about how King uh, Benjamin, originally said King Benjamin, uh, uh, trans, uh, translated. So so in the original, in the uh, Mosiah 21-28, Ammon says, I know someone who could translate. He doesn't actually say he does, but he says, I know someone who could translate, which would be King Benjamin. And so, anyway, so it becomes a question of who actually received this text and who translated it and who was Ammon referring to it. Was it Benjamin or was it his son, uh, King Mosiah, who takes over for him? 
Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Who cares? That's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> brother Bowen and myself. <laughs> this one's for you, Brother Bowen. So you think the change from Benjamin was incorrect? You think that it, King Benjamin was the one who could translate? So it says in the record, if you remember, King Benjamin's pretty famous, the Book of Mormon, right? He's the guy who builds a tower. Mm -hmm. And when he's building this tower, he did it for two reasons. One was to give the people a name. But the second was to tell him, hey, I'm out of here. My son Mosiah is going to take over. So King Mosiah started ruling for King Benjamin before King Benjamin was dead. King Benjamin was just old, and he's like, I'm done. Mm -hmm. Let someone else take over. And so uh, King Mosiah, when he took over for his father, is the one who sent Ammon to go and find the people of Zarahemla. So when Ammon says, or the people of Limhi who had, who had left Zarahemla, when Ammon says... I know the king, and then later it talks about him being King Benjamin. It seems many people thought, well, King Benjamin was dead at this point because it says King Benjamin lived for three years after he um, gave the throne to Mosiah, and it says that Ammon didn't leave Zarahemla to go look for the people of Limhi until three years after into the reign of King Mosiah. So some people said, look, King Benjamin must be dead. Why would Ammon be talking about King Benjamin if the guy was dead? And um, others have argued, including Brother Bowen and I, that there's a potential overlap, that King Benjamin could have been alive when, been, when Ammon left, and therefore he actually means King Benjamin. Now, what actually happens in the Book of Mormon is when the people of Limhi go back to the land of Zarahemla, they eventually get their way back, they bring the 24 plates. King Benjamin is dead, and in fact, Mosiah is the one who makes the translation of these 24 plates, because mm -hmm. King Benjamin is not there. But the question is, who did Ammon think was going to make the translation? Gotcha. And mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that it was King Benjamin. And then so what happens later in the ether part is it talks about translating some kind of plates, and it talks about King Benjamin doing it. And apparently this change was made in um, 1849. At this point, the earlier passage that referred to King Benjamin had already been changed, changed to King Mosiah. So now it seems in order to harmonize this, Ether chapter 4, verse 1, was also changed to say King uh, Mosiah, even though, um, well, it's, it's really quite complicated. <laughs> Can I get a board? No. Uh, yeah. yeah, so, Absolutely. Uh, because uh, what actually, if you read Ether chapter 4, verse 1 very closely, what you'll see is, and this is what we argue in, the argu in our article, is that Ether chapter 4, verse 1 is not talking about the 24 plates of Limhi at all. It's talking about the record of the brother of Jared. And the whole point of our um, article is over the centuries, has it been that long? Over the hundred and something years since the Book of Mormon's come out, people have conflated the brother of Jared's record, because he had a vision and wrote something down, and the 24 plates of ether, and have said that they were the same things, or that the 24 plates of ether contained, or the 24 plates of the people of Limhi, these 24 gold plates, contained the record of the brother of Jared. And our argument is that they're two separate records. And in fact, King Benjamin discovered the record of the brother of Jared. He translated it. And then later, because he had done that, Ammon knew he could translate and brought to him, tried to bring to him the 24 plates, but he was dead by the time they got back. Okay. Yeah. More broadly, how do those different records function in the Book of Mormon? Like, are they around? Are they, I mean, what happened to them? Uh, well, that's a great point. So uh, the... We hear again about these 24 plates when Alma is talking to his son, Helaman, 
and he's telling him to take care of the records. And he talks about the 24 plates and says, you know, take care of them and pass them on. Uh, and eventually we, we read that Mormon, uh, years later, uh, takes all the records of all the Nephi people, presumably also these 24 plates, and buries them in the ground and only keeps a small portion, what we would call the Book of Mormon, and gives that to his son Moroni and tells Moroni to finish it, to add something about the people of Jared, and then to bury it separately. And mm-hmm. so there's that's they seem to be deposited in the ground there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, of course, also know that uh, Joseph Smith, originally when he was translating the Book of Mormon, you'll remember this story, it's pretty famous. He, he lost 116 pages of mm-hmm. the Book of Mormon, and, and um, part of that seems to be the beginning of the Book of Messiah, what we call the Book of Messiah. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, Brother Bowen, our, our, our contention is that this story, which we're talking about, this idea that the King Benjamin found these plates, and you know, why isn't that stated, that it was in the 116 pages that was lost, and that's why we don't have the details of the story. It's only hinted at in these other little parts here and there. Mm-hmm. Fun for the whole family. Fun, <laughs> it is. It's really, it's yeah. complicated, but it's really nice to. Yeah. So you can see, I don't think anyone's really jumping on the, bandwagon so you know we kind of said you should change it back but i don't think anyone's going to maybe after this podcast you <laughs> never know who's I listening think president nelson listens to this right yeah, so i think, I think yeah so. i think he'll probably be like hey him. we should switch this back <laughs> so the version that endures is the mosiah version yeah 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 so these okay. changes were made uh so if you opened up if someone's listening at home and they have the 2013 edition of the scriptures of their online scriptures and they look at ether 41 mosiah 21 28 it's just going to say king mosiah and they're gonna be like, what is Dr. Sharp talking about? He's a crazy man, <laughs> which I get a lot. Uh, but if you go to, um, again, online to this book by Royal Skousen about textual changes in the Book of Mormon, or if you find the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, or you find the printer's manuscript of the Book of Mormon, which is also available at the Joe Smith Papers online, you will see that the originals all said King Benjamin in those passages. Mm-hmm. It's harder to find those passages because they don't have chapters and verses divided the same way we do, but. If you took the time, you'll find it. I feel like, sorry. No, that's right. Oh, I feel like this testifies, though, though, like how amazing Joseph Smith was that he would translate it. It's Benjamin. And then we change it. And if you're right, he was right all along. Well, I think, you know? I think the other thing that... this testifies is this. And we tried to suggest this in the paper, but I don't know if we did it strong enough. Is So... One of these changes was made during Joseph Smith's life mm-hmm. and probably by Joseph Smith. And so some people might take that and try to say, well, look, this is evidence that Joseph Smith is a fraud and he's just making this up as he goes along. And he's realizing, he, oopsie, I accidentally said King Benjamin and that guy's supposed to be dead in my story. So I better change this and say King Mosiah. But I, I, I don't I think that's a gross oversimplification of what's mm-hmm. going on. And that's what we're trying to point out. I think what we actually see here is that Joseph Smith himself did not write the Book of Mormon, that he himself did not fully understand the complex story that the Book of Mormon was unfolding. Mm-hmm. If you actually look at the sermons of Joseph Smith, there's very he doesn't quote from the Book of Mormon very often. There's little evidence that he spent a lot of time reading the Book of Mormon. <laughs> um, he translated it, and then he was on to the Bible. He's receiving revelation. He's running for his life. You know, he's doing all this stuff. So. Um, but this idea that, you know, I, I, I think it testifies these changes that Joseph Smith himself did not author the Book of Mormon and didn't understand 
all the stuff that was in there. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not trying to say I'm smarter than Joseph Smith, but <laughs> I, I guess I am. I don't know. I no. <laughs> that, You've researched it more. No, yeah, that yeah. I cared more than he. I did. cared more about the story. <laughs> but yeah, to me, this these changes testify that the Book of Mormon is true. Uh, whereas a lot of people look at this as evidence that he's a fraud, I see it as evidence that he's a prophet and that he was inspired in his original translation. Hmm, that's a good way yeah. to look at it. Well, why have people stuck with these changes just because it's a it seems inconsequential to them or it just I um I'm not at a position high enough to answer that question I don't know why <laughs> people have stuck with the changes um, you know they came out um, I, I kind of in 2013 the church published a new edition of the scriptures uh, they made a uh, changes a lot of changes to the footnotes and to entries of the sections of the doctrine and covenants uh, I don't think they made very many textual changes. I think, I, I, I think it's hard to make changes to the text. Plus, it's probably expensive. <laughs> I mean, but, that's true. Uh, if you have to yeah. print a whole new version, yeah, just print for... a whole new thing in all those different languages that they have to do. I don't know how many languages <laughs> they translate the Book of Mormon, but it's yeah. you know more than ten. Um, it's probably pretty costly, and then it, the the PR of it. I don't know. It seems like it'd be hard. Did they do this to the Bible? Like, is anybody ever? Like, textual changes in the Bible? Yeah. Now that's my jam. Yeah, let's that's talk my, about that, Dr. Sharp. <laughs> that is actually what my PhD is in. There you go. Yeah. So, we were interviewing you on the wrong thing. <laughs> so uh, if you think the Book of Mormon has changes, wait till you see the Bible. Uh, yes. Um, so the Bible, there's a huge difference. So the Book of Mormon, as you know, was written in these gold plates, which uh, we no longer have. The angel Moroni took them back. But Joseph Smith dictated them, uh, or, or, you know, when he was translating, he didn't physically write it, right? He spoke it out loud in someone else, usually Oliver Cowdery or Emma Smith, depends on what part, but someone else was actually writing it. Mm-hmm. That original handwritten from the mouth of Joseph Smith still exists in, in large part. And then before they gave that copy to the printer, that original manuscript to the printer, mm-hmm. they made another copy of it. Joseph Smart. Smith had learned a lesson from losing the 116 pages yeah. and didn't want to give away the original. So yeah. he made Oliver Cowdery copy the whole thing by hand. Oh, wow. Which now you may understand why there might be some mistakes in that process. Yeah. And then Oliver Cowdery then gave it to the printer. And then, and that's called the printer manuscript, the one that was done by hand, uh, the, the copy of it. And then the, the 1830 edition was published. But we still have the, the original printer's manuscript still exists in its entirety. Mm-hmm. The original manuscript uh, is somewhat damaged, but uh, a large part of it was just purchased by the church or at least some fragments of it a couple months ago. Um, and so uh, these exist. The difference with the Bible is uh, there are no original copies of the Bible. Uh, there is no copy of a copy of the Bible. Um, I was just watching uh, some, reading some things today that, Someone thinks they may have found a fragment of the Gospel of Mark that's maybe two inches big that might be from the first century. But most of our manuscripts are from the fourth century. They're 300 years or so Mm -hmm. after the fact. And they're all just copies of copies of copies. Of the over 5,000 Greek New Testaments, the ones just in the Greek language, no two are the same. So Mm. there's, there's, there's thousands and thousands of differences in Greek. So it's great. So in this school, can I plug BYU-Hawaii? Absolutely. At BYU-Hawaii, it's great because all of us in the church, we just think of the King James Version of the Bible. When I say all of us, that's not fair. The Howleys in the church think of the King James (laughs) Version because they think that's the church's Bible. But if you, did you guys maybe serve a mission in another country or anything? or not. But, you know, like if you go to 
Spanish-speaking country or Portuguese-speaking, the church has a mm-hmm. different official Bible. Uh, it's not it's not in English, right? It wouldn't do them any good. Yeah. Uh, if you go to Korea, if you go, and most of these are not church publications in most of the world. Um, it's just the church finds some local translation that they like and they yeah. use that one. Say, so, hey, you know, please bring this one to church or whatever. So when we open up our Bibles in in my New Testament class, and you have someone from Japan and someone from China and someone from England, uh, you know, mainland, uh, read in English their Bible, they're different. And everyone thinks it's because of translation, but it's not because of translation. It's because they're actually translating different Greek manuscripts and that the original manuscripts behind them are different. And it's a great way to talk about changes that have been made to the the Bible over time. How does somebody decide which Greek manuscript to use? They just pick one? Like, what is the, what would the Vatican use? Like, what would the Pope (laughs) decide? Like which uh, you're Bible? just trying to get me excited now, aren't you? I know, Dr. Sharp, you're <laughs> looking like... I'm lighting up over here. Uh, everyone <laughs> everyone mm. uh, at home or whatever is just like going to sleep. They're they're out. But I'm, I'm excited right now. I'm pumped. <laughs> Textual variants, really? Um, well, historically, a lot of it has to, had to do with what you had access to, right? So the King James was made with the Bibles they could get their hands on in England. Um, the um, Since the King James... Bible was translated, uh, more Greek manuscripts have been discovered. In the last couple hundred years, there's been some very, very important uh, biblical discoveries. Um, I'm talking most of the New Testament, but it's also true of the Old Testament as well. Um, And so uh, how do people decide what to translate? Uh, Again, it, it, it depends. Most modern translations are made from something called the United Bible Society, the Greek German United Bible Society's edition. Uh, I think they're up to their fifth edition. And their text, their Greek text, is not from one manuscript. It's actually a composite. It is a, uh, again, this is only about the New Testament that I'm talking about. But um, what it is, is a, a committee of scholars have gotten together, have examined numerous Greek manuscripts available to them, as well as translations into some of the earliest languages like Latin and Coptic and Syriac and just determine on a case-by-case basis which manuscript they think is the best. And and then that's what gets translated. So when I learned about this, so here, when I was in grad school, right? So I went to grad, can I tell you a story? So when I was in grad school, I thought to myself, at first I thought to myself, if I learn Greek, then I'll be able to read the original Bible and that would be good. Yeah. Because right now, when you read the King James, you're relying on the translation made by someone who has a whole different set of theological beliefs than you do. I don't know if you ever try to translate something, but nope. but <laughs> you're even if you're not doing it from Greek, just from whatever. I mean, you you bring to it your own culture and your own biases. There's there's not like a one for one word ratio. Like you have to sort of you have to sort of uh, round off what it means to the nearest variable. And mm-hmm. and so if you're reading the King James, you're just relying on a bunch of Church of England Protestants whose yeah. theology you would strongly disagree with to determine what this meant in Greek. So I was like, I'm going to learn Greek and then I'll know what's the right. Mm-hmm. But then I, as I started studying, I discovered that there was more, there wasn't such a thing as an original Greek. And then I thought to myself, well, what I need to do then is familiarize myself with all these differences rather than just trust this committee of people who determined which was the best in the oldest manuscript. Because again, their decisions are made a lot on 
subjective theological biases. So that's why I teach biblical Greek on this campus so that you can. (laughs) How many languages do you speak? I heard it was an incredible amount. Um, Speak? Yeah. uh, Or two. You know, Uh, understand. Yeah. um, For my um, degree, uh, I had to learn seven uh, languages to be able to translate. Yeah. Um, so I don't have to speak them. I just have to be able to read them. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them are dead languages. No one speaks them. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, for my mission, I learned Portuguese and um, I can do Italian. So Spanish, probably about 10 wow. as far as like reading and translating. Shoot. So, yeah. So in all these different languages, like biblical Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, yeah. whatever else, Syriac, whatever. Syriac, yeah. Syriac. Um, I don't know that one, but yeah. <laughs> I, but it is one, yeah. But just when you're reading and so you've read manuscripts of all those yes. different Aramaic, languages. Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, Coptic. Okay, yeah. so there's, I imagine that there are certain things that are always similar or like parallel throughout them, but then you're saying that there's always going to be differences in the translation. So what does that add to your knowledge of the Bible or that's a great question. Who cares? That's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that sounds fun, but what difference does it actually make? Um, it's not all I was thinking. <laughs> well, let's, uh, there's an example of one of, of a textual variant. It's, it's kind of important for Latter-day Saints. I didn't bring a Bible, but it's in, um, first John chapter five, the epistle, first John chapter five, verse seven and eight. And uh, like I said, I didn't, I didn't bring my scripture, so I'm going to have to paraphrase. But if you opened up your King James, it would say something like, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear record on earth, the blood, the water, and the Spirit. Did and you these say three this are one. John? Yeah, First John, not the Gospel of John, but oh, first, first John, John, the epistle. First John. Chapter 5. Chapter 5, 7 and 8. Yeah. You want to read it? Yeah. Yeah. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. So imagine if you would, you said you hadn't uh, gone on a foreign mission or something, but imagine if you were teaching as a missionary or something, and you're trying to teach about the Father and the Son being different beings. Right. And someone just opens up this verse and says, look, it says right here, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost are one. Yeah. One, and you one might deal. try to say, well, they're one in purpose, and they're one or whatever. Actually, though, if you looked at the Greek, uh, and or if you looked at the Chinese, if you're, or you would see that what it says there is, um, for there are three that bear record, the Spirit, the blood, and the water, or something. Mm-hmm. That whole passage about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, was was added to Greek manuscripts and was added in like the 12th century, so like 1,200 years after the fact. And so I think this is an example of a textual variant that matters because we get in these de- discussions, I was going to say debates, but you know, you get in these discussions <laughs> with people of the other faith and we're, we're using the scriptures, and sometimes the scriptures we're using maybe don't even reflect the proper, the proper, the original Greek. And if we knew a little bit more, we could just, you know, bypass the entire argument and say, look, that scripture you're trying to use, uh, I appreciate it. It's part of a great rich tradition, but it's not, it's not part of the original text. It's not what John would have written. Wow. Yeah. Like based on the, the text that you have, you're both right. 
but yeah. it's because you're talking <laughs> yeah, about because you exactly researched more you're right like yeah no more so so it's anyway so yeah and and uh there's other examples like that that um that i find interesting awesome there's another it's a little bit less but there's one in um mark chapter one i think it's verse 41 where it talks about a leper coming up to Jesus and says, Jesus is moved with compassion and puts forth his hand and heals him. But some of the Greek manuscripts say Jesus was moved with anger and put forth his hands and and healed him. And I just think that's an in- interesting idea that Jesus yeah. was kind of annoyed with having to stop his day and heal this person. <laughs> Maybe that's not what you like to think about Jesus, but... <laughs> I don't know. More humanizing, I think. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but when you read Mark chapter 1 as a whole and you see that yeah. the the trouble that um healing had gotten jesus into and how he doesn't seem to really be that fond of it that he really wants to focus on preaching the kingdom of god um makes it adds some credibility to this other passage that this one might be original mm-hmm. textual variants a lot of fun <laughs> a lot of fun yeah not even my wife cares about this <laughs> Well, I think it's I interesting. Think, yeah, I think it's <laughs> oh. interesting. I don't know very much about like translations or, you know, changes that have been made. So I think it's interesting. Does this happen in other disciplines? I mean, yeah. So, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, this is all because uh, the Book of Mormon is a little bit different, but, but this all happens because these manuscripts are copied over and over by hand. They didn't have a printing press yet. Mm-hmm. So this, if you were studying um, Homer or Plato or any other sort of ancient text, where you have multiple copies, they're, they're, odds are they're not the same uh, word for word because mm-hmm. someone's copying it by hand. And maybe they're making conscious changes. Maybe they're purposely adding in this bit about the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost in order to prove some theological point. Or maybe they're just doing the best they can and they accidentally omit a letter or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, the original manuscripts of Greek were not written with punctuation or sentences or spaces between words. So if you could imagine looking at the New Testament letter after letter after letter after letter, um, you know, you don't have to be an evil scribe trying to remove plain and precious parts to make some mistakes. And so it would happen in any discipline where things are copied over by hand. Um, It's a little, I think, more rare uh, once you get to a printing press where you're able to um, print 5,000 copies that are all exactly the same. Mm -hmm. You know. Interesting. How does... I mean, like, a lot of your research is focused on, to me at least, it seems like the science of religion, you know, like the very, I don't know, particular things. Um, how does that add to the more spiritual element of religion? Like, when you That's go to church, question. is it like a whole different experience <laughs> than most people have? Um, I don't know. I don't, it's hard to know what someone else's experience is, right? Because you That's only true. experience your own, you only experience your own world. Uh, but I would say just thinking about myself from before graduate school to after graduate school, I, I think my testimony is different. Um, I think it's stronger. But I've always been sort of a, a, a more maybe intellectual believer. I, I don't mean that as better or worse than anything else. I just I think different people experience the spirit in different ways. To me, when I go to the scriptures with a question, why is this King Benjamin instead of King Mosiah or whatever? And then I go and I do the research and and yeah, what am I doing? I'm looking through old manuscripts or old whatever and Henry. But to me, 
when I get a moment of clarity, to me, that's a spiritual experience. That is the spirit opening up my mind to me. Or when I'm studying uh, some some ancient manuscript and I see some fragment and figure out where it goes, like where on this manuscript this one little piece goes in a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That that to me is a a, a spiritual a spiritual experience. Um, I think a lot of what you experience in whatever your career is, whether it brings you closer to God and to the church, or whether it drives you away, I, I think has a lot to do with your attitude. Whether you're studying religion or medicine or English. How many people um, go into feminist studies and then wind up finding offense at the church? And how many people go through that same process and wind up building their relationship and their testimony of, of the gospel and the role of Heavenly Mother and all these other things? So, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah. Did that play a big part in your conversion to the church? Sorry if that's too personal. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I joined the church uh, just in the first year of college, and uh, uh, it was really through uh, a, a young woman gave me a copy of the Book of Mormon. And as I started reading the Book of Mormon, I was reading it sort of like, let's see what this Joe Smith guy made up that makes these Mormons act so weird, because Mormons were, they are. They are. A peculiar people. And um, that's the nice way of saying that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and um, as I was reading, she didn't mark anything, so I just started at the beginning and was reading through. And I got to Alma chapter 32, and it talks about experimenting upon the Word and about as you experiment upon these things, it was going to grow within you and begin to swell within your breast. And and um, I realized as I was reading it that that's how I was feeling, that that mm -hmm. was the experience I was having. And there was no way that some farm boy would know how I would feel a hundred and whatever years later. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when I first started to develop a testimony of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. And my my testimony is firmly rooted in the truth of the Book of Mormon. So that's why, I mean, the stuff about Benjamin and Mosiah, it doesn't bother me because I, I know the Book of Mormon is true. Right. And so then it's just a puzzle of why did this happen and how can I explain this? Um, and solving puzzles is fun. Yeah. It's um, like a treasure hunt. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> you're a religious Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah you know, well, he, he was Indiana looking for the Holy Grail in one of them, right? He's for, in the Ark. Yeah, he's religious too, right? He's looking for yeah, right. The Ark of the. So, yeah. Except for when he's looking for a crystal skull, that was just dumb. But other than that, he was looking for a religious. I can't remember. Do you remember that one? That was. Mm -mm. Is that was, Shia LaBeouf? Yeah. Okay. It, it was it's forgettable. Not, yeah. Not good. <laughs> yeah, that was okay. the one to forget. Yeah. You had to forget one. But anyway, yeah. Well, thank you for coming on our podcast and letting us just ask you questions about. Well, thanks for having me. I anything. hope I hope it wasn't too dull. So, hey, <laughs> you can pick up the article. Should we tell them where to find it if they Absolutely. want to actually read it? Plug yourself. Yeah, I don't know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's in a book. Uh, it's in a journal called The Religious Educator, Perspectives on the Restored Gospel. Uh, volume 18, number one from 2017 by Sharp and Bowen. You can, you can look that up and find out what we were actually talking about. See some footnotes and references and stuff. Yeah. Cause I you shouldn't get to the bottom of this. You shouldn't yeah. just believe what you hear on the internet. Exactly. <laughs> Even though we're very credible with your research. <laughs> Don't take our word for it. Um, where else can they find you? I mean, are you on the internet? Um, or? no. 
Biblical Greek class. <laughs> Biblical Greek class. I'll be there. And religion classes. Uh, I have, uh, you know, I have some other things published uh, and forthcoming in different journals, but they're mostly about um, even more boring stuff. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't. Um, it's part two of our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> part, even more boring things with Dr. Sharp. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But this is probably. Oh, I have one on baptism for the dead. That's a good one. That's Pe- a really people might yeah, want to know about that. Where's that at? I can't remember. <laughs> it's out there. We'll it's get out the link there. And we'll put First it in Corinthians fifteen twenty nine, okay. baptism for the dead. It's Greek origins. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Cool. I have a four hundred and seventy something book in Coptic, but no one there even wants to know. I mean, about somebody that. has got to be <laughs> listening to these podcasts that wants to know. <laughs> that wants to know. I was at a conference once, and this guy came up to me and he said. Thank you for your book. And I was like, what? And I had heard that there was this library in like Denmark that had a copy of it. And I found out this guy was at Denmark. And I was like, oh, your library has a copy. And he goes, oh, that's the one I bought and gave it to him. <laughs> so, so apparently it was only one. I thought there were two copies floating around, but it was the same one. <laughs> oh, shucks. It's okay. It's all right. This podcast will help you and us. So I actually don't make any money off of it. It's all good. It's all for love. Well, thank you for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. This was the Zeno Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Zeno Podcast. That's X-E-N-O Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about what we talked about today uh, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at podcastzeno at gmail.com. This podcast was brought to you by BYU Hawaii's Reading and Writing Center. Thanks for learning by listening.